Welcome to the Journeys of Scientists podcast. This is a podcast put out by WAMPS, which stands for Women and Minorities in the Physical Sciences. We are a graduate student organization at Michigan State University. I am Brian Stanley. I am a graduate student in the physics department at MSU. The purpose of this podcast is to talk with other graduate students at MSU and other universities to get a sense of the type of research they do, but also learn about life as a graduate student, both within and outside the classroom or research lab. If you or someone else you know are interested in participating in the Journeys of Scientists podcast, you can email me at the email below in the show notes, or you can visit the WAMPS website, which is www.wamps.org, and you can send us a message there. On this episode, we are joined by Jen Fry, a PhD student at MSU in the Geography Department. She also runs Jen Fry Talks, which is a social justice education firm that uses conversation to educate and empower those within athletics through an anti-racist lens. Hope you enjoyed this interesting conversation. Welcome, Jen Fry. Could you briefly introduce yourself? What is, can you briefly describe some of the work that you do? Um, yeah, so I kind of twofold. So I'm Jen Fry. I run Jen Fry Talks. Uh, Jen Fry Talks is a social justice firm that focuses on educating and empowering those with an athletics through anti-racist lens. And then also I'm a PhD student in geography um, at Michigan State, and I just finished my comp. So I'm ABD right now, waiting to get the dissertation finished. Oh, very, very nice. So I kind of focus a little bit on the the PhD, the graduate student side first. Mm-hmm. Um, so you describe like a little bit was, first of all, what department are you in? Was kind of the work that you're doing there? Yeah, so I am actually in geography. Um, and my specialty, my subdiscipline is sport geography, uh, which is super rare. There actually in the world isn't any um, major or minor sport geography programs. You can't get bachelor's, master's, PhD, nothing in sport geography. Um, and so for me, I kind of came to this. I was a college volleyball player. I was a college volleyball coach for about 15 years. Um, and so I started looking into programs that were of interest to me and I actually got recruited to this one. And it's a situation where, um, what I am studying. So I'm doing my dissertation on the racial experiences of professional black volleyball players in Europe. And it fits nicely in with um, geography because I really look at how the spaces they're in, the places they're at, their locations really make their experiences. And so it was just a really nice fit to do something that really no one else has kind of done in the U.S. I mean, um, sport geography is like people's hobbies that you have like economists, you have people who do sand dunes, you have anthropologists, sociologists, all these people that kind of dabble in sport geography, but there's really no one that's like, I am, especially I think in the U.S., that's like, I am a sport geographer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I w- I'll be like, I'll be honest, like my little naive view of like what even geography was, I just thought mm-hmm. like, oh, it's someone, you know, with maps and stuff. And then, you know, I looked through like, oh, what your bio was. And I'm like, oh, sports geography. I didn't even know that was like a, th- a thing that that you know existed so that's that's really interesting so how did you kind of come about that how did you kind of find this little subfield or 
Well, I mean, the the thing I, I give a lot of kudos to is the geography department because there's no one doing this work, right? And mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing when you are a grad student, it's always about finding your niche, right? What is your contribution to the field? What is your, like, mm-hmm. that is like the, the thing that will be beat into you is what is your contribution to the field? And I like to do different things. The last two jobs I had before I started my company, um, I was the first person in the job. So I was able to kind of make new paths that way. And so new jobs, new things have always been really interesting to me. And so the geography department really took a chance on this person who, um, the, the former chair, Alan Arbogast, he was, he taught a class in sport geography and he helped um, Michigan State Athletics uh, develop their study abroad program in Australia. And he taught kind of some sport geography there. Um, so there's kind of that connection. And then my chair of my committee, um, Kyle Everett, he does human geography in like Turkey. And he works with like poppies and drug geography, all this super random cool stuff. And so they took a chance on me saying, this is my topic because I came in with my topic already fleshed out and I had a data set. So I said, here's a group I'm studying. I already have names. I have people who want to be interviewed. Um, So that helped me a lot more versus coming in and having to start really from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's been a big thing, I think, in helping me is really saying I am starting from this place of I know the people I want to interview. It's going to be really easy for me to interview them. You know, um, one of the biggest things within your dissertation is getting not only your data set, but people who want to be interviewed. If you're if you're mm-hmm. actually interacting with people, you know, you'll tend to see a lot of people who are like, I need one more person, two more people, three more people. And I didn't really have to worry about that because I knew this group really well. Um, and so it was just a little smoother of a transition to kind of dive into this niche that really I'm kind of developing right now and also developing as I go. Right. So right now I, I just finished my comp. Like I said, I'm, I'm starting to develop my proposal as well as um, writing. And it really is kind of adding like, okay, what theories do I want that I can add together that can get what I need? Um, because there really isn't a theoretical framework that focuses on geography, gender, race, and sport. And so what does it mean? Like whose experience am I going to center? And then what framework am I going to be putting around it has been kind of the biggest conversation. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really great. So um, could you then talk a little bit about your company that you're a part of or that you created and then like where does that kind of fall time timeline you know it, it said oh you already can't have this foundation and group of people and and all that like where is that time wise versus to like when you started like this graduate school experience so that sort of makes sense yeah so i started my company i mean like in probably 2016 i think i started it and then i went full-time um, when I moved to Michigan to do my PhD is when I started really going like I before COVID, I would travel about five days a week usually. And so I'd um, travel like I leave Friday and Saturday, Friday or Saturday. I travel and speak during the, during the week and then come back like Wednesday night to have class Thursday and Friday. So I was traveling about five days a week. Um, and so my company, I, I work with athletic departments, really organizations across the board because my work is very foundational. I just talk about race and racism from a very foundational place because I think that many times when we get in this conversation of race and racism, it's we're not realizing that we're coming from different views of what it is and we don't have similar language. And so one of the biggest things that I do is really help develop this this foundational language and 
also give folks an idea of, hey, these are things maybe you should start thinking about a little bit more. Because when we have these conversations, many people don't add the aspect of their identities in it. It's like, well, we're going to talk about this topic and it's going to be, you know, completely separate from my identity. It's like, no, they, they're intertwined. And so I have this company. I'll sometimes work with friends depending on um, how big, big the contract is. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. It's been great, again, to kind of develop a new lane with talking about the stuff that I wanted to talk about and how I wanted to talk about it. And um, it's interesting because like I, I, my company's on race and racism and that's the like the specific lane I stay in. I don't do LGBT because I'm always like, why would you want a straight person doing that? Like that to me doesn't make any sense, right? I, I don't feel like someone that's able-bodied should be doing work in disability. Like I, that's just my personal opinion. Um, and so... I'm studying the racial experiences of black females in Europe. And so I think it, it intertwines really well. Um, and for me, the people I'm interviewing are people I know, like it's, so it's get, been kind of like a weird homecoming slash like really enjoyable project. I know that sometimes for people, it's like pulling teeth to get people to answer questions. And for me, it's been very different. My interviews are lasting like two, two and a half hours where I'm <laughs> like, okay, this is way too long because it's not just, um, them answering questions like it's literally us having these conversations with friends and that's been I think the the coolest part about it is that we just get to have these conversations as friends um about these topics that you know like I kind of run them through um not just like a okay well tell me about your experience with racism in Europe, it's like, no, you have to kind of like scaffold it. You can't just jump to the hard stuff. And so we really kind of go through their life and talk about stuff and people we know and, you know, common friends. And so it's, it's a really, it's been a really enjoyable project to, and then also to really uplift the voices of the amazing black women who I know. That's really great. Where did the connection with Europe come from? Yeah. You know, um, so I like to travel the world a ton. I travel as much as possible. I mean, it's been kind of interesting because, you know, during COVID, um, I've been probably flying twice a month. My mom was pretty sick and then ended up passing away in June of 2020. So I was flying to Arizona every other week. And then um, I just like some of the, the schools I would work at would be open. So I'd go and speak in person. Um, and then I would just travel to different countries as well. So I've been like traveling this whole time. Um, what was the question? I think I forgot that. Oh, I was just wondering, like, where the connection to oh, Europe came from. <laughs> that's where it was. So I like I love to travel. And so for me, I think about what my experiences were like. And I was like, well, what are their experiences like, especially this kind of space of being a black woman, but also maybe having a little celebrity status. And what like what were their experiences like? Were they similar? Was mine an outlier? And so that's where it kind of came with, of my love of like, I want to uplift black female volleyball players and I want to talk about traveling Europe. So it was like kind of intertwine the two things I wanted to, I enjoyed talking about. Oh, very nice. How does um, like professional volleyball in Europe, you know, versus like professional volleyball in like the United States is like even just kind of culturally of the, the interest in, in the sport itself or anything like that's very similar. Well, you don't really have professional volleyball in the U S so there's that. Okay. That's, okay. Why, Fair. Yeah, that's, that's why everyone goes overseas. So, Puerto Rico has a pretty decent professional league. Um, their seasons are pretty short. So people go over there for some like two, three month seasons. Um, the U.S. just had this thing called Athletes Unlimited. And it's essentially kind of run by the athletes. And so they have softball, I think, 
lacrosse and volleyball. Oh. And so okay. they had their first season this year. And so essentially what they do is they have like 20, no, they have like, I don't know, like 50 athletes or something. And they divide them into three teams and they do it. Then like people get pit captain. And then while they're playing, you, you get certain points for certain things. So like a kill gets a point, an ace gets a point. If you shake a ball, you minus a point. If you are the MVP of the team, you get plus X amount of points. And then that automatically sets the next captains for the next match. And then those captains get to pick who their team is going to be. And then that's how it kind of keeps going. So athletes and limits is a pretty cool kind of, so every week there's drafts okay. and it really is based on points. Mm. And so, um, so there's that. And in the, in Europe, Asia, um, there's a pretty extensive professional volleyball scene and it goes like you have people may, who might be making 2 million at the top. And then you might have people at the bottom making 600 and teaching English in the, in the morning. So it's very different than the professional system here um, where it's very solidified, right? Like you don't really have clubs. You don't have professional league teams that go bankrupt. Like they'll just move cities, Mm -hmm. right? Like think of like the Seattle Supersonics. They, I don't even know where they're at right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe they went up to Vancouver Grizzlies or Minnesota. I don't know. But they, you know, like if a team is leaving, they just go find a new new town. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it is in Europe. In Europe, teams will pop up, go bankrupt. Like, like it happens really quickly. Um, it might be that you're literally in the middle of the season and your team goes break, bankrupt and you don't get paid. So, and, and there's, it's a lot of um, migration happening. Like people usually will be changing teams every year. They might play a short season in Puerto Rico, then they'll go play a longer season in somewhere in Europe. And it, it's like, you're consistently changing teams. Um, it's very, very rare that you'll be on a team for like a long amount of time. Also, you have such a different age disparity, you know, in Europe, you might be, you might be 25 yourself and you're playing with a 15 year old as well as like a 45 year old. Mm-hmm. So it's like a huge just spectrum also of age and experience. Yeah. I would imagine that would be, Something that I've kind of heard about, like in European sports, like can you mention, like, oh, they come and go and they can't top mm-hmm. out and, or pop up. And it almost seems like a very like capitalistic nature here. Well, in the US, like sports, like you have 32 teams, they split all the profits and stuff like that. It's relatively stable. But like the European leagues, that seems like very stressful to me. Like if you're a player, like there seems like a lot of uncertainty there. Like, is there like a higher like stress load on like on players there kind of you know uncertainty like hey this could go at any moment does that that makes sense sense? yeah that's actually a really good question i think that brian you maybe gave me something else to study that's a very good Mm -hmm. question to ask and i think there might be because it's not just the stress level it's like a team literally could just decide not to pay you yeah just and if you so what many people do now in their contracts is it says if you don't pay me um if after a month you haven't paid me i can go to a new new team because what was happening is that people didn't have that in their contract and they wouldn't get paid for a month but they also couldn't leave the team so they were Mm -hmm. stuck in like this vague area they're like well do i need to pay or do i need to play for someone else to see me but i i haven't gotten paid and so i would think that there's way there's way more stress i would almost bet i mean and that's something i think might be interesting to um to research especially 
bringing in WNBA players who play mm-hmm. one season WNBA, one season professional. Um, you know, basketball might be a little bit more stable mm-hmm. than volleyball. Um, but yeah, I mean, also if you get injured, there's usually some type of rules. Like sometimes like if you get surgery in the U S we won't pay for it. Like there is, mm-hmm. um, I interviewed someone and she said that because it also, cause you don't speak the language. Right. So mm-hmm. that's another thing is your contract goes through your agent, but like you might not see your contract or they might pay you under the table. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, one woman said that she, like her knee was hurting and they had someone look at her knee and it was like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry. And then the nurse or someone else came out and was like, hey, I just want to let you know they had the dentist look at your knee. So you might want to go get checked. So like stuff like mm-hmm. that, where you have to always be on guard and always be like worried. Mm-hmm. Absolutely is happening. So, I, yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, I'm going to write that down because I think that would be worth interviewing, especially looking at um like pro bat, like sports that maybe have a longer term, like mm-hmm. maybe professional soccer, professional basketball overseas compared to the U.S. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it sounds like there aren't really like player unions or, you know, mm-hmm. like camp, like protective, like player protection services. I don't know what the right word. No, to, yeah, to, there's yeah. not. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'm, I'm guessing that you're interested in the volleyball side of things. Were you a volleyball player when you were in, in college? And mm-hmm. very nice. Yep. What, what position did he play? I played outside for two years, right side for two years, really jack of all trades. Um, yeah. And so I also, like I said before, was a coach for 15 years. So it's just mm-hmm. something that I was just kind of like, well, if I'm going to research something, why not research my community? Yeah. Very nice. I, were you just interested in volleyball your entire life? Or you're there like other sports you can have explored. I played soccer and also ran track, but volleyball was the one I played in college. I felt like it was easier on my body than soccer because I was always going to the ground and my body was just beat up. And so I just felt like it was an easier sport, even though hitting the hitting the floor is pretty painful if you don't know mm-hmm. how to do it well. Where did you do your undergrad? I did my undergrad at the University of Montevello, which is a small division two school in Alabama. I did my first master's at Tiffin University in Ohio, and I did my second master's at UNC Greensboro in North Carolina. Okay, very nice. When you were first applying for, um, like, undergrad, um, like, how much did you weight um, the the college athletic side of things versus the education, you know, getting a college education? Because I know that's sometimes, like, a big balance that that people can't have to weigh of like, oh, I can get a scholarship and one, but you know, there's a big time commitment, obviously. Well, Brian, first off, it literally was like 24 years ago I was an undergrad. So I, <laughs> I'm 41. So I want you to know it was a, it was more than two decades ago that I was an undergrad. <laughs> just a little bit of time. <laughs> um, but it was just all about athletics. Cause I mean, I came from a single family home. My mom was, was a librarian. She didn't graduate high school. Like college was never a thing for me. Like it was never something I talked about going ever. Um, and I was taking junior college classes in call in high school. And my, the volleyball coach at Arizona Western was also like my club coach. And so she was like, Hey, do you want to come play? I was like, okay. So I went and played junior college. And then it was kind of like, well, you can keep going and playing. And so I had enough credits to transfer at semester. So I just was like looking at where I could play would give me money. And so I went to Montevallo and played there. And then um, I ended up coaching like a little club team, a little girls club team. 
And they were like, well, you can get, you can go get a master's. And I'm like, I don't even know what a master's is. Like I had no clue about education at all. And so I went and was able to get my master's paid for and get it free. And so, but I, it was just always sports that kind of took me this path um, and helped educate me. Cause I didn't know like what things I need to get. Okay. And then, so what brought you back to do the, the PhD work? then was it because you really want to study this like what does what does this step kind of like what is the next step that this brings you to or helps you get to yeah I mean you know my company does well um I think you know for me it was kind of a challenge of like let me see if I could do this thing I I never thought I'd get a PhD like ever 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 and I don't even like I can't even say what it was it was like I, I just started talking about maybe the possibility of me getting a PhD and and what would I get it in and like trying to look at the topics and think about it. But there was, I mean, I'm not really a person that thinks I want to go into academia and and do tenure track. That just looks pretty brutal. Like I see people who come out looking like they're like army crawling, right? Because they got beat up. Um, But like, man, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I think like I'm the type of person my friends will tell you, once like I have something in my I, my head I am full go I am not like mm-hmm. deviating from it at all and I think it was just a, a, like a good opportunity to like let me see if I can try and do this and, and become a doctor I yeah I mm-hmm. really have no like and plus like the opportunity like to really like create a niche in the field that like I mean it's kind of funny you know you look at other people's research and they'll be like I'm talking about this gap in the literature and like baby there is no gap like there. Mm-hmm. And that field has been cut for me. There is like the main like sport geography um, books are like from like 2003. There's mm-hmm. an editorial, there's an um, edited book that came out by Natalie Koch in 2017. But like, there's really, not, and especially in the US, like there's sports, so, um, sports sociology, but there's nothing sport geography. So there's this huge kind of niche I can dive mm-hmm. into. Yeah. So then how easy, like, you know, since it is such a niche topic, how easy or difficult is that where, you know, there's, there's so much work that you can do. So like, um, sorry, this is poorly worded question, but there's a, no, a lot, there's a lot of work that you can do, but then who are you able to lean on or collaborate with, you know, cause it sounds like in general, there aren't like a lot of people that are doing this. And then even at like MSU it kind of sounds like you're one of the only people there, like, who can you bounce ideas off of or, you know, look for advice and things like that? That's a really good question. And and for me, it's like having just a multitude of different types of people, right? So my committee has um, Alan Arbogast, who is a dune specialist, like a sand dune specialist. Mm-hmm. Kyle, who does sport ge- or, um, human geography. Um, Dr. Akila Carter-Francic, who is um, probably one of the most well-known women who study Black female athletes. Dr. Billy Hawkins, who studies athlete migration and black male athletes. And so it really is like putting these things together. And um, like right now, right in my dissertation of really adding the geographical element into it is, is kind of the space I've been like working through of like, what does adding this element look like? Um, but because it is new, it's for me, like finding my way, you know, I think the, the main thing is for me is the best dissertation is a finished dissertation because I have so many ideas. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to do this. I want to stay this group. I want, and it's like, no, I have to finish this. Then I can move on to that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think it, and there's a lot of sports sociology stuff about space, but it's not like about people. It's about like landscapes and arenas and, and athletes moving point A to point B. Um, but also it's interesting because like a basketball player coming overseas to play has a very different reason than a volleyball player, right? Mm-hmm. The volleyball players come because curiosity and they want to travel. Basketball players are coming for money and a way to get back to, to the NBA. And so it's very different why people are migrating. And so um, I'm trying to like keep all these ideas, like I said, like writing them down for the future, but also like, I don't have a problem in contacting someone if I'm like, Oh, they wrote a book or they read, wrote something interesting. I'm just going to reach out to them and see if they want to chat. So it's balancing ideas off of everyone and anyone. Oh yeah. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. And yeah, that's really great that you're like, you almost get to be can't innovative, like who you get to talk to yeah. and stuff. Yeah. How has COVID sort of impacted the work that you've done? Because it sounds like, you know, especially if you traveled a lot or, you know, like mm-hmm. sports all shut down and all that, like, how is that, how have you kind of like overcome that? Yeah. So when COVID hit, like everything was canceled immediately. It was like this kind of wait and watch. It almost felt like, um, how old are you, Brian? 25. 25. I don't know if like back when you were in school, like in elementary school, would you have to wait and watch the TV to see if like your school was closed for snow? Uh, sometimes, yeah. So like back in my time, like you would watch the TV and it'd be like, so-and-so district closed. So you'd be like, mm-hmm. yeah, you yeah. Know, you'd be up at like 5 a.m. just holding your breath mm-hmm. waiting. I totally forgot where I was going um, with that analogy. What were we talking about? I just lost my train of thought. COVID. Oh, yeah. So um I talk a lot in Ramble, as you can tell. So yeah, so um, it was like this thing of like back in, you know, in in elementary school, it's like, woohoo, you get to wait and see if finally you get to like mm-hmm. stay at home and go back to sleep. It was the opposite way of COVID. It was like, mm-hmm. no, no, <laughs> another one cancel. No, no. Okay, we have this one for, you know, March 14th. Mm-hmm. Let's, okay. You know, every day it would be like, no, okay. Okay, we haven't heard back yet. We haven't heard back. Oh, it's canceled. And so it was the opposite. And then what happened with George Floyd and the, the racial uprising, especially with black athletes, that made it kind of just change on a whole different level because it was like, OK, we have money and we do need to talk about it. So mm-hmm. COVID like made me it made it virtual. So it made it a lot easier because I didn't have to travel. I could just sit at my computer in my apartment and literally sit there and do two Zoom sessions a day. So it it, it changed that sense. It just made it go virtual as opposed to being in person yeah has it how are things going now is it slowly like gotten back to normal ish for you or is you still doing these virtual events or are you still are you able to travel more can't take it I mean, slowly it's it's both like i actually have a virtual session tonight with a, a program in new jersey and then friday i'm speaking um, at alma college so it's like it's both and so what i tend to do is like just make sure i've faced if i have to do some virtual stuff but i think the virtual thing also makes it easier so when i'm talking to people i can say okay i can come out in person this one and the rest of it we can do um virtual and so adding kind of that hybrid model has been pretty beneficial yeah very nice um kind of shifting off here so i always like to ask people like what okay so you're doing your work or your research and all that but like what is your life you know outside that like are where are some hobbies or other interests that you may have or you're involved in 
my interest right now are finishing this damn dissertation. That is that's it. A, I don't, that's a good interest. My partner, he uh, likes Ted Lasso. So we've been watching that. But mm. I try not to get sucked into TV shows because especially if all the seasons are out, it's really easy to get sucked in and lose mm-hmm. a whole day watching this show. Like it's man, you get sucked into one and call it just forget about it. So I've been trying to really focus on this, but um, I mean, I read a lot. I try and still talk to friends and travel. So it might be the the cool thing also about COVID and virtual is that I've been able to do sessions from Guatemala or Mm -hmm. Belize or Costa Rica. And I've been able to travel and do sessions wherever I was, as opposed to having to like stay in the U S or something. So I think also the international aspect, I mean, I just came back a few weeks ago from Spain and Portugal. So that, that aspect of traveling is really important to me. And so I've been trying to do that as well. Okay. I'm kind of curious on your experience with the virtual um, talks and presentation out. I think of, so in the organization I'm a part of, we do a lot of school visits or and, and things we do like hands-on science activities, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And obviously going virtual, like we had to do that this past year, but that was very difficult. You can't, you can't lose some of that human interaction. I really, it's hard not to just be like, I am talking at you for mm-hmm. X period of time, which while in person we could have, like, it was easier to have a back and forth. Like how have you had a similar experience? Like it was great for us because we could, we can reach schools that we wouldn't have been able to drive to, but then it was, mm-hmm. those interactions are very different. Like it sounds like you're able to reach, you know, all these different places and all that much more easily, you know, I can do it in my Mm -hmm. living room, but how is the, how are those connections look like? Are you able to have a back and forth with people? Yeah, that was probably one of the biggest worries I actually had was how, because my sessions are super interactive in person. And I was like, well, I I don't want, I wouldn't want to listen to myself talk for two hours straight. Mm -hmm. So how do I make it interactive as much as I can? And so what I do is I have a lot of people reading out prompts um, so that's one of the main things. Like I have a lot of people, I'll have prompts out and people will be reading them off. I do probably about three or four breakout rooms and have people share out. Um, like I tell people, I will not move through a question unless you answer. So it, you know, most people will be like, anyone have anything to say? Anyone? And they'll just move on. And I'm like, no, nah, we'll just sit here in dead silence. And so that's been a thing for me is to, um, is to try and make it as interactive as possible so that at least it's enjoyable. I think, you know, one of the biggest compliments is when people are like, wow, I didn't know I was going to actually like this session. (laughs) And it actually turned out to be really enjoyable. And so that is like a huge compliment um, because I I try and make it as enjoyable as possible. How big of a, is it just you that's running this company and doing all this? Or do you have a team that is helping you out along the way? Um, so yes and no. So for instance, um, I like, I do all the presentations. I do that. I have a manager who handles like all of my, um, booking call. Well, I usually do the booking calls, but, um, I like, she handles all my contracts. She handles, um, like if someone reaches out to me first, I just immediately shoot them to her so that Dawn can, can handle it. So it's not me like doing all of that. Um, she like posts graphics and stuff like that. And then I have a person who makes graphics. So everything else, like, I think the funny thing always is people will be like, when I have calls, um, people will be like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was going to be you. I'm like, yeah, you know, I try and keep it 
at least a little personal that way mm-hmm. that you're working. You're like, you're going, we're going to chat directly about what your needs are, but she's like kind of the first line. Okay. That's, that's really great. And so then, um, this is going to seem like I came back late on another topic, but I'm kind of curious when you decide I'm going to start this PhD. Um, you can't mention, you know, there's a period of time between like when you were in school and then you're coaching and you're doing all this other work. How is it kind of getting back into that school or academic like setting or mind frame? Like, how is that transition for you? Well, I mean, lucky for me, I. So I graduated with my second master's in like August of 18, but there were some really interesting classes. I was like, I still want to take these classes and I'll mm-hmm. pay for them because they were just so cool. And I'm so glad that I did because they completely prepared me for my PhD, a hundred percent. And so I took those classes and I was in class till May 19. And then I was done. And I ended up moving here. So mm-hmm. I, like have been in school since 17 essentially with my second master's. Okay. So there wasn't like a drop off mm-hmm. of schooling. And like when I was doing that second master's, I was also working full time. So both my masters are online. I did online. So moving mm-hmm. to online classes was completely normal for me. I mm-hmm. actually having class in person was a rarity. Um, but then I think, yeah, I mean, I was used to like having to drive 45 minutes. Like, so my classes, the ones I took in fall of 18 and in spring of 19 were in person. So I was driving an hour, an hour there, but then like 30 minutes back because where I lived was like midway. So I went mm. like 45 minutes to work, but then I passed where I lived to go to school and then the half mm. an hour back to where I lived. And so I was used to like driving a long way and having to like manage my time mm. that way. Um, so it wasn't like a huge shock to my system to balance. Um, I think the biggest thing was like balancing, like making sure I got the classes I needed on the days I needed because I traveled so much and I couldn't mm-hmm. have a class like on a Monday or Tuesday because I traveled so much. Um, and so that balance, and I will say, like, I will tell everyone the biggest thing was I used the writing center. I used the writing center mm-hmm. every like every document I wrote, Excuse me, I did not turn in without the writing center looking at it, every single document. And so because I used the writing center and I knew, okay, if I need, I need to have my document to the writing center on X day so I can do my edits the next day and send it in. It really helped me be proactive with my writing. So there was never a time where my, my thing was due at 5 p.m. on Thursday and I'm still writing it Thursday morning. Like that never mm-hmm. happened because I was very diligent in using the writing center on a consistent basis that it was like, okay, I have to have my edits and I need to have this writing center appointment by Tuesday so that Wednesday I can do all my edits and send it in. So I was able to stay really proactive on all my writing. And that helped me tremendously because, and one of the reasons I did that was because my business, I couldn't, right. I couldn't sit there and be really late with an assignment and then having to go present to someone. Like I I just couldn't, it would cause Mm -hmm. me too much anxiety. So that this helped me really keep on track with having my assignments in early and getting the stuff done I need to do with my business. Okay. Is these like time management skills, something that you just can't learn along the way? Was there someone there helping you or was it like, Oh, it's again, got older moving through these other things. Oh, there's more consequences if you don't. And so then that's kind of like kick you into gear. Like, so it sort of makes sense why I'm asking there. <laughs> no, I mean, Brian, my, my time management skills are a clusterfuck. I'll tell you that right now. 
Um, I am not the person who talks about time management because I'm usually up to like 2 a.m. reading or something. Um, but no, I think what really helped me was, like I said, I took those, the um, fall of 18, spring of 19 in-person classes. And a professor I had both semesters, Dr. Batez, was amazing. Man, she was hard as hell. Woo! She prepared me for my PhD. That's why I came to the PhD. I was like, I had Dr. Batez for a year. Everything else is fine. Like, I'm okay. And um, I remember, like, because she did this great thing where we all agreed that we wouldn't get grades on our assignments. Like, she'd keep grades in her, her grade book. Mm-hmm. But on our papers, we would just get the feedback. Okay. So that helped out a lot because when we got to, you know, because when you get your assignment, what's the first thing you do? Scroll to your grade. And if it's mm-hmm. a grade you like, you don't look at any of the feedback. Mm-hmm. And so this way you had to look at the feedback. And let me tell you, those first papers, she done ripped me to shreds. She was like a cat on it. She, I mean, she ripped me to shreds. She was like, you need to go to the writing center. And I'm like, but I got masters. I don't care. You need to take your butt to the writing center. So because of that, I started going to the writing center where I worked at. Luckily, I worked at a university on my breaks. I'd go to the writing center and get help on my papers. But like that was a key catalyst and seeing how like beneficial the writing center was. And I mean, I had undergraduates. I'd worked with graduate staff. Like I didn't care. And so that really helped me be like, oh, wow, these like this is really, really beneficial. And you could see the difference if I went to the writing center or if I did it in just more of the clarity of my ideas because they helped me think about it on a, on a different level. So that was like a big thing. And, and one of the things was like, once I come here knowing I'm going to be busy, I can't stop using the writing center. So that really propelled me um, to make sure that my appointments were early. And then plus I used one girl, Fiona. She, when I started with her, she was a senior and she was phenomenal. I mean, she was so good that she graduated. And I was like, hey, I'll pay you to still look at my stuff. So I would pay her to still look at my pairs just because we had such a good repertoire. And she knew what, like, I she knew what I needed. Like she knew the mm-hmm. questions to ask. So she was great to work with. And so that, because of her schedule at the um, writing center made me have to make sure I had my stuff because, you know, at the writing center, they only work certain days. So if you're going to use that person, you got to make sure you have your stuff and appointments go really fast. So that also helped me be mm-hmm. really proactive. What kind of, so, you know, something like I, you know, I'm trying to write my own academic papers and it's something that I am just struggling with because I feel like I have my thoughts, but then putting them to words is not the most clear. Like, what, how is that communication with the Rising Center sort of look like? Is it more feedback on writing style, greater ideas, et cetera? Both. Like the, the thing I like about the, like one of the guys who works at the Rising Center, Kyle Chong, is amazing like if you could book him i would book him every week if i were you like he he's helping me with my lit review i mean he makes me cry like i look at it and i'm like i thought i did good <laughs> oh gosh i hate you so i always on twitter i'll go after him i'm like got my got my child tongue and it's back time to go cry a little bit before i write them but like they just really give you they ha- ask questions and get you thinking on a d- deeper level like yes they look at so you only get like an hour. I think you go and book like two a, a week. And so um, they look at grammar. They look at um, like punctuation, all that. But they also ask questions and help you elaborate, you know, on because when you write, you write with the knowledge. How do I say this? Like you're writing with the knowledge and people are reading it without it. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's that gap, right? Like you're writing as if they know what you're talking about. And so it, it just helps out in expanding your ideas and, and getting more nuance to it. Like it's, man, they, they ask really, really good questions. And, um, like they read it out. And so what I usually have them do is they'll read it out. And I, like when they're reading your stuff, you immediately start to hear the edits. You're like, Oh, 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 mm-hmm. oh and you got to start fixing it. So I, I would suggest anyone to go to the writing center and start that off and make that a very normal part. And that will, it will make your life easier because it will hold you to be accountable of getting stuff done early and then mm. writing well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely have to go, go check that out. Cause it's, <laughs> I know it's something at least, you know, I I'm struggling with a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So sort of wrapping things up here, I always like to ask people, um, do you, if they have like any advice or tips of wisdom that they would give like an undergraduate thinking about either going to grad school or pursuing some other like industry type job or, you know, something like that. Um, very, very vague, but. Yeah. I mean, I think like what I tend to hear people is like, I have this idea, but because no one else has done it, they're like, well, I don't know if I should do it. And like, if no one else is doing it, then you should definitely do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in undergrad, I think my advice would be like, take classes that are so different from you. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's easy to fall into the, well, I'm just going to take classes I'm comfortable with. Take classes that are so different. And I did that in my PhD. I took classes. I was like, I know the teachers are asking, what am I doing here? Cause I'm wondering what I'm doing here. I took like a linguistics class. I didn't even know what linguistics was, but what I thought it was, it was nowhere near what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Wagner was so kind. And if you can take a Dr. Wagner's class, she is awesome. Um, but like I took that because it looked really interesting. I took a stereotype prejudice and discrimination class. And I was like psychology or social, social psychology. That was super different. Like I just like take interesting things. And there's so many random interesting classes, like take them where I, I feel like there's people are so afraid to like get a B Mm-hmm. So they'll take classes that they know stuff and are kind of easy just mm-hmm. to make sure they get a good grade. I look for me, my philosophy was B's get PhDs. I was mm-hmm. okay in getting B's in these classes that I was like so behind in like the knowledge base. I, I was okay with getting a B, mm-hmm. right? So like for me, B's got PhDs because I learned some really cool things. And I think it like, yeah, grades matter, but when you get to be a grown up, no one cares about your grades. No one's like, what was your GPA? No one cares. Yeah. No one asked right? for your transcript. <laughs> no, like they, they want to make sure you graduate, but they don't care what you took. You know, I'll, I'll hear people who are like, I'm double majoring, triple minoring. I hate to break it, but people don't care in businesses, right? Like they don't care if you have a French minor. Are you fluent or are you not fluent? Like mm. that's all. Can you speak to someone, right? Or can you not? And so I think the thing is, I would just say, like, take advantage of, like, the really cool classes. If you could study abroad, like, go and study abroad. Take, like, take those opportunities because you won't, like, it's, it's just more difficult once you graduate. So, like, get to know cool professors that are doing really interesting stuff. Professors love talking about their work. And so those would be, like, my biggest three things. Like, take different classes, study abroad, like, travel the world, and then get to know professors because then if you need references for grad school or whatever it is, they'll, they'll give it to you. And they'll be able to give you a good one. Like you want good references because that also makes or breaks, especially what mm-hmm. we're seeing now with um, law grad schools, getting rid of the GRE, what are they going to wait? Like what's mm-hmm. going to be wait? And it might be references. Um, 
I think people going to grad school, um, like think about what you want to do. Cause I, I just say that helped me out so much was like having this idea of what do I want to do? I'm a part of the community and I know I can get access to people to interview. I just see so many times people will, will want to interview people that they don't have, um, they're not part of the community. So it's just so difficult to get an interview. So I just say like, um, yeah, that make it easier on yourself, you know, have in your interview something or, or work on something, reach, research something that um, is accessible for you. Perfect. I think that's fantastic advice. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And, and thank you for coming on and doing this. It was a pleasure talking with you. You too, Brian. Thank you very much for having me.